Content warning. This episode contains mention of sexual abuse and or other forms of abuse. I was lost in utter darkness. I was trapped in toxic shame. I was bound by my religion till I chose to break away. Now I'm finding my true colors for the Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hi there, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and today I'm doing something that scares the hell out of me. No pun intended. (laughs) I'm telling my own story. Well, at least a part of it. When I was planning this podcast, both my therapist and the owner of the studio for this show had to remind me that telling my own story was a part of the process. I find it much more difficult to dig deep and be honest about my own experience than I do to hold space for others to do the same. But it doesn't work very well that way, does it? (laughs) So here I am, deeply honored to be interviewed by our guest interviewer for today, Jenna Graham. She is one of the dearest friends of my life, and I am so grateful to have spent the past six years of our friendship talking through what we believe about God and faith and spirituality, and to have her as my interviewer and forever confidant. Before we get started, I want to give you a quick overview of what to expect from this show. I am the person running everything, except the editing, behind the scenes. From recording to design to scheduling, writing, and planning, yours truly is making it go. So to maintain some semblance of balance in my life, I will be running it seasonally. The first season features 13 episodes, one for each year since I left it all behind. Episodes will air every other Sunday and feature a guest interviewed by me. Each episode has a loose theme and you'll be hearing about a variety of belief systems and experiences. Some episodes do contain explicit and triggering content, so I will give you a content warning at the beginning of the show and in the show notes if that's the case. And you can count on there being swearing in every episode, so do with that information what you will. I am self-funding this podcast, so any help making it happen is appreciated. I have a donation link, a bookshop, and a merch store set up on the website. And of course, it always helps if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on the platform where you listen. 
I would also love for you to follow along on Instagram at Now I See Podcast. Okay, now that we have all of that covered, I'm going to stop putting off the hard thing and share my story with you all. Thank you for listening. Hi, Jenna. Thank you for being on the podcast today as our guest interviewer. I can't think of a person I'm more excited to have interview me for this. You know me so well. We've had so many beautiful moments talking about faith together, and I'm just really grateful that you're here. Thank you. I'm just so proud of you for telling your story and the whole truth. So to kick off our call today, I thought I would read a writing that I did right before I started the recordings for this podcast. I was really in a contemplation phase, and it has just sat with me ever since. I ended up putting it as um, the first blog post on the website, Um, and it just kind of sets a tone for me. So, It's 7.30 a.m. on a rainy Sunday morning. In many of my past years, I would be in a rush right now, frantically trying to figure out what to wear and anticipating what the sermon of the day would be ignoring any facts my body was trying to tell me. I'm tired. I hate this. Please stop. But today, I'm sitting at my desk in my cozy, beautiful office, listening to the rain and the birds while my beagle Josie sleeps on the chair beside me. It's a church of my own making, and I am eternally grateful for this. It's been a busy week, full of sickness, big projects, big thoughts, big feelings, and big accomplishments, and I don't have to worry about going anywhere. I can actually rest today, and it's a testament to the power of growth that I don't have any guilt about it. I live in a house of peace, mutual respect, and love. We might snip at times the natural outcome of two strong-willed independent people sharing space, but we don't yell or fight. I've never been made to feel guilty here. Any form of support I lack is of my own making because I'm still too afraid to ask for it. I dreamed of this kind of peace when I was younger. I'm so glad I was finally able to accept it. It's strange how peace can first feel like boredom when you're so used to chaos. It's nice to be deciding what makes me feel truly alive instead of equating danger with excitement and anxiety for ambition or purpose. I've been trying to ease into the power I need to make this podcast a reality. I've been through the initial excitement phase, the planning phase, and the narrowing down phase. And now I'm in the space of action and contemplation. I don't think I expected the contemplation piece to hit this hard. Over the holidays, I saw so many people from my past show up to offer me kind words. It was lovely, and I was surprised by some of the praise I received. I've spent a lot of my life living for that praise, and now it's very possible they will regret it and change their minds about me. It pains me. I hate to disappoint people. I've contorted myself into so many different versions of Amber that I've lost track of who thinks what about me. Now, at 34, I'm coming clean and setting the record straight. This will inevitably ruffle some feathers. But as my therapist likes to remind me, I'm a spicy meatball, and spicy meatballs aren't for everyone. 
She also likes to remind me that I keep trying to be oatmeal, and it ends up making me unhappy, frustrated, and sad. I really don't want to be those things anymore, so I'm doing what's calling for me. I know there will be people who think I'm just being rebellious, mean-spirited, or cruel. There will be those who think I'm just angry, short-sighted, or even working as an agent for the devil. I also know that none of those things are true, and that there are so many people who will see what I'm doing differently. Many of them are people who need it. I cling to this and the belief that I may not be able to change the world, but I can create a space for hurt people to heal in community. I can create a part of the world that is better, even if it's very small, and I can stand in power knowing this. I'm not fully healed, so I'm not trying to teach anyone what to do. I'm just creating space for us to learn together in hopes that a little vulnerability might go a long way. I hope that embracing myself as a spicy meatball helps me learn more about myself, what I want in life, and what I can actually do. I also hope that being open helps others do the same. And finally, I hope that every pastor, institution, and person who used a God to hurt others is exposed. We've had enough. How does that feel? You know, it's good. Yeah. It's emotional, but it's good. Big release, I bet. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that listeners are so curious how you got here. You've shared a little bit about your past and the discomfort and the yearning for peace. And at 34, I'm wondering if we can rewind a little bit and reflect on your childhood And if you could share a little bit more about the faith and the institution in which you were brought up. Yeah. So I grew up in a teeny tiny little town called Aberdeen, North Carolina. If you pass through it, you might not even know. It's very small. The closest big town was about 30 minutes away. And the nearest Walmart was between like 20 and 30 minutes away. We lived way out in BFE. (laughs) We saw all the stars at night. There was no interfering light, you know. And I grew up in the independent fundamental Baptist church. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, independent means that we were not affiliated with any associations or organizations or groups that put us together as a whole and then managed kind of from the top down like the Southern Baptist church does. And fundamental (laughs) kind of speaks for itself, I think. It's very much the Bible is the infallible word of God written by men who were literally writing God's words down that were given to them. The King James Version of the Bible is the only, only acceptable version of the Bible in this world, which is interesting to me because I think if you do even a little bit of church history around that, that falls apart pretty quickly, as does a lot of this, actually. But it's it's a very strict group. And so the rules around certain things are very important. Um, one of them being King James, as we mentioned, the other being the way that you're baptized. So it's submersion baptism only. Women are subservient to men under something called the umbrella rule. So God is the biggest umbrella, followed by men who are the second biggest umbrella, but not quite as big as God. Close, but not quite as big as God. (laughs) 
And then there's women and children who are on the same umbrella and they are meant to be subservient to men and men are subservient to God. So God kind of passes through like the church and then men and then men's families. And that is a very intensely taught thing. So the infantilization of women begins here of keeping women and children, mothers and their babies on the same level in this hierarchy. Yes. Husbands are the rulers of the households. Did that feel true in the household in which you grew up? Yes, very much so. So back up just a little bit. My parents divorced when I was a baby. Uh, My mom was 17 when I was born and they divorced pretty quickly after, you know, many marriages that begin that way don't work out. And I've always said that I'm very grateful it didn't because I think they would be terrible together, truly. (laughs) But (laughs) I can't imagine them together now. But so I grew up with my mom and stepdad. My dad lived in Texas and had some rights to see me. So I would see him once or twice a year. He'd fly me out to Texas. Fun fact, I've been flying alone since I was very, very young. Dad used to come and then I would fly back with him on the plane. But then I, I want to say I was probably eight or nine, even maybe 10. The first time I got on a plane was just like a stewardess watching over. Wild ride. They didn't know what independence they were instilling you. Instilling That's exactly you right. At that time. <laughs> Every now and then my mom will say something like, I know you're fiercely independent. And I'm like, yeah, you taught me how to be. <laughs> like, this is where this came from. And I thank you for it, mom. I, I am do. a woman that you unintentionally raised. (laughs) And I really appreciate you for it. I really do. I love my independence. I love that I'm, I'm very capable of taking care of myself. And I've made some bold moves and we'll get into that. But yeah, I am grateful for that. But that was very true in my household, the hierarchy. So my stepdad would go to work and my mom and I would stay home and do chores, household management, my mom managed like the budget and all those sorts of things. You know, we did all the laundry, cooking, cleaning. And then when my sister was born, we were taking care of her. Pretty traditional housewife type things. So at this time, are you home throughout the day or are you also at school while your mom is fulfilling these duties? I was homeschooled. So I, okay. I went to school in preschool at a very strict Christian preschool at the church where my mom grew up. But I, did the rest of my schooling from kindergarten through second grade at home. Then I went to public school in the third grade for one year. You can imagine how that went. That must have been such a culture shock. Oh my gosh. I was the weird kid. I was the weird kid. And that's okay. I'm still the weird kid and now I just embrace it. But um, so I come back home after that. Homeschool fourth through seventh grade. And then I went to a small public charter school in eighth grade. And anybody who's actually been to school can tell you that eighth grade is a nightmare. (laughs) Coming from homeschooling into eighth grade, it was so weird. It was just so weird. I look back on it and I'm like, oof, brutal, just brutal (laughs) experience. Um, Do you remember why it was that your parents chose to send you to school at those ages? You know, that's a good question. In third grade, I remember mom telling me, My sister at that time would have been a toddler and she had a lot of health issues and even she will tell you, so I'm not, I'm not ratting her out, but she was a terror child. (laughs) Like she was just wide open 
cried a lot. Like she was just generally kind of unhappy <laughs> and spicy, right? She's definitely of the two of us, even the spicier one. So the spiciness like runs through the women in this family. It is some fire spice. Awesome. Despite the religion. Yes, there is a spicy fire. I think it's the Irish. We're just like, absolutely not. No. <laughs> so, um, so she mentioned sending me to school that year because it was very difficult to manage Kaylin being at home all day and me being like trying to do school throughout the day. And she thought it might be better in third grade. Was your mom responsible for teaching you? Like, was she your homeschool educator? Yes. Uh, to a point. Mm-hmm. So I, I did a lot of schooling myself. I've always There's been There's that independence again. There's that- I know, right? I'm like, oh yeah, that's where this comes from. Oh my gosh. Okay. So so what were the tools and resources that were used for your homeschooling? Yeah. Um, We used a Christian, like a fundamentalist based even curriculum called a Becca book. There are two huge ones. There's several out there. Pretty much any big fundamentalist institution has its own printing press, I've learned. For Bibles as well as for school books. For For school books, for devotionals for fundamentalist, like nonfiction and fiction books, pretty much anything. (laughs) It's kind of wild. You're going to hear about that a few more times this season too. Blew my mind how many printing presses there are out there specifically for religion. So the two main ones are BJU Press and a Becca book. And I did a Becca book. That is the printing press from Pensacola Christian College, which as we'll get into. Some foreshadowing. (laughs) Some foreshadowing. I did eventually go to school there. And then I had a few textbooks that were from Bob Jones. And then for upper level math, like once I got into high school, I had a video series because math was not my strong suit and I needed a teacher. And my mom's also not a math person. So while you were being homeschooled, it sounds like you also had a lot of chores and responsibilities in the household. Can you tell me a little bit about the motivation behind that or the messaging that you were receiving? The responsibilities were big. And it's hard for me to say that. It feels very vulnerable for me to talk about how big it was because I did a lot, like cooking meals for the family from a very young age. You know, I used to make jokes about how I used to fold my stepdad's underpants in a very specific way and iron his jeans in a very specific way because our job as women was to make his life easier. Um, There's a book that was very big in the church I grew up in. It's very big in fundamentalist circles still called Created to Be His Helpmeet. And so the theology around this is that women are literally created by God solely to be assistants to men. That is their job and to bear children. So I was raised like that. That was a very big part of the reason for it. I very much was in housewife training from the time I was very young. That came up a lot. It's hard to say, especially since she doesn't think this way now, but for a long time, it was taught to me that my education was my backup plan for in case I didn't get married young or in case something happened to my husband, he died or couldn't work or whatever. And that was supposed to be like a backup for, you know, being married. Yeah. Some really challenging messaging for a kiddo. And of course, When that is the messaging that you are receiving, not only at home, but also in your faith community, it goes deep. So outside of the messaging that you were receiving in the household about your place of service, where was that being reinforced outside of your home? 
So I was getting it from church on a regular basis. And this tr- this teaching started very young at church. I remember being in Sunday school classes, younger than like 12 years old, hearing this repeated by my Sunday school teachers. I remember one time, one of my Sunday school teachers was saying that we shouldn't ever watch the show Home Improvement with Tim Allen, because the woman in that household was the head of that household. And that is not a biblical way of living. It was very intense. Like, It was constant and it was driven in so hard, so much that, I mean, that was the point, right? was to keep that system going. And the less you were able to watch or read or get out into, the more you were going to be happy in the fold. What did it feel like transitioning between these two worlds of this small town and your small church and then visiting your dad and stepmom in Texas? You know, those are two very different worlds. So that's complicated for a couple reasons because it shifted over time. Sometimes, actually every time it was a mixture of things, I would go in thinking, okay, I have to maintain these very strict values and I have to behave like this and I need to witness to them and let them know that like they, I want them to go to heaven with me. And like, it would kind of start like that. And I would bring it up like, oh my gosh, my poor dad and stepmom have heard me witness to them more than probably five times. In my childhood, I'm sure that was very traumatic for them as well. <laughs> but it also sounds like it was concerning to you that these two people that you loved were not going to face the same positive outcome as you had been taught that you were looking forward to. Yeah, but you know, looking back, I think what I couldn't distinguish as a kid and what I what I didn't have the wherewithal to know or to really understand and explain, I don't know that I really believed they were going to hell. But there was a ton of guilt and shame around, like, if you deny God, God will deny you. And so if you aren't willing to put yourself in uncomfortable situations to make sure that people in your life know God, then you don't deserve God. It's very intense. Amber, that's so interesting because it revolves around your guilt, what your role is, what are you being good enough? Are you being helpful enough? And still recognizing the good in others. there It doesn't sound like there was a lot of judgment and shame that was being placed on these other people. No. You know, I've always really loved people. And that, that was something that has never changed in my life. I really believe in the amazing, in the amazingness of each person. Um, but the church, this particular type of church anyway, will, will have you questioning that and and seeing yourself and people differently because the theology is that you're born into sin and that without God, you are nothing. There is nothing good about you but God. So if you don't have God, you're really nothing. And you start hearing that when you're three, four, five, six years old and it follows you through your life. You really believe it. And while I didn't see my dad and stepmom as bad people at all, they're very kind and loving people. I did have that guilt that I felt like I had to hold on to. What's interesting though, is that after a few days, I would loosen up. And it's funny to hear them talk to me about it now. I really love hearing stories like this. They were like, first two or three days, we got church Amber. After that, we got Amber. And it's so sweet to hear them talk about it. They were like, you are having fun. You were being a kid. You were playing games. You were listening to music. And you weren't questioning whether or not you could listen to music. And 
you know, we would watch movies and you wouldn't be scared to watch movies. And I'm like, that's really sweet. Um, and it puts it into perspective. Like I was going in so terrified to like listen to Paul Simon and the Beatles and like, you know, all this wonderful music. My stepmom has great taste in music. And then after a couple of days, I was just like, wow, gosh, I'd like relax into it and just have a good time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it also just indicates to how impressionable kids are as Mm -hmm. to their environment and what feels safe and what feels right um, and what they're being told. So your, your church in this tiny town, can you tell me a little bit more about your involvement and what that looks like? Is this church on Sunday? Tell me more about it. Uh, I love this. Yes. So we were very involved. And as I got older, I became even more involved of my own accord. So we had church Sunday morning, Sunday school before that church. So you would go into your respective age groups, Sunday school class for about 30 to 45 minutes, have a little small group lesson. Then church, church started. And that was the whole production, right? Like I say production, it was a church of like three to 400 people and there were no drums allowed or strumming guitars for that matter. That's the devil's guitar. So we only finger picked, (laughs) you know choir singing, hymns, you know, what you would expect of a small Baptist church in the South, and then a sermon, and then an altar call, which that is one of the most emotional experiences I can remember of my childhood. Um, A lot of churches do this. Um, So the altar call is where they finish this powerhouse of a sermon that's big and emotional and makes all these grand statements. Um, And then they're like, is God calling you to come forward and confess or to repent or to give your life over to him or to invite him into your heart? There are always huge, huge emotional things. So there would be an altar call and then we close. And sometimes there would be potlucks and things after that. Those were always my favorite. (laughs) Still might go to a church potluck, no talent. And then we would go home, take naps and be back for Sunday night to do the same damn thing. Okay. So Sunday school, church, everything that church entails. And how far away are you from the church that you're having to go home and then back again? So we lived fairly far away. We were about 30 to 40 minutes away. Why this church? Why was this the one that your family was called to be involved in? I'm not entirely sure how we ended up here because... My mom grew up in another church in town that was much closer to where we lived called Calvary Christian. It also comes up later on in this podcast. It was somehow even more strict and intense. Like there was like no makeup, no cutting your hair, that sort of thing. And she grew up there. And I feel I think Yates, Yates is the name of the church I grew up mm-hmm. in. Yates may have been a similar doctrine that she did respect and believe in like she and my stepdad, but not quite as overbearing okay. as Calvary. And when you're comparing the two, honestly, Yates looks like a free-for-all compared to Calvary sometimes. So, so. she was loosening up a little bit. Oh, yeah. So, really. Okay, got it. <laughs> really breaking the mold. But it and my grandmother like- was going there, so that could have been part of it. I really – I should ask that question, actually. So this is the faith that your maternal lineage has – kind of been a part of for a few generations is what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. What was your role in perpetuating this faith throughout your community? Oh, this is the part that, I mean, a lot of it makes me sad still, even though I'm definitely on the rebuilding portion of the journey, but this makes me sad because door knocking and witnessing 
evangelism to encapsulate it was a huge part of this experience. So I would go knock on people's doors and hand them gospel tracts. Anyone who doesn't know what a chick tract is, you have to Google it. It will blow your mind. There are millions of them. It is, again, a whole huge publishing thing. Um, but they're like little cartoons that tell a story about somebody doing something bad or not accepting Jesus into their heart and then going to hell. And there were like images of them in hell flames, cartoonized like a comic strip. And we would give these to people. Are you alone as you're door knocking? Are you in groups from your Sunday school? What yeah. what does this look like? Groups from church, okay. various groups. So there's like youth group did it a lot. I think because a lot of adults were like, absolutely not. <laughs> we will not be doing that. But a lot of adults did go. And so we would go out and we'd break up into small groups and go knock on people's doors in the community. We would also go on missions trips to do this. So there were people who would go to the Dominican Republic, people who would go overseas, in various locations. I never went overseas, but we did take a trip to South Dakota and did a lot of witnessing there <laughs> and one to Baltimore as well. And was that funded through the church essentially? Was that kind of just crowdsourced from the community to then send youth to these other places in the country? Usually each youth who went paid for it. Oh, Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes if you couldn't find the money, you could you could ask and people might donate to help you go if you wanted to go. But usually, yeah, we paid our own way. And then portions of it might be covered like lodging or something like that. But most of the travel and food and things were on us. That's a big financial commitment on top of your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. It's also just, I think, really odd that a group of children gets in a van with two or three adults, and they show up to a door, or in the case of South Dakota, an Indian reservation, and they're told to pair up and go out and hand people these gospel tracts. It's it's predatory. That's how I see it now. It's very much rooted in white saviorism, which the irony of that in the Indian reservation is not lost on me. And I I mourn that a lot. That experience makes me very sad. And it's wild to me that even in the late 90s and early 2000s, when I started doing this, that was still just such a big practice. And then the expectation is that whatever you're doing, so any activity I might have done outside of homeschooling and the church, which was very few until I got into high school. And even then, compared to most people, it was very few. The expectation is that you're setting some sort of really extreme example of what it's like to live a holy life in Christ so that people are attracted to it and they want the peace you have. And certainly there is some peace in having a very limited view of the world because you don't realize so many things. But there's a lot of pressure that comes with it too. Yeah, I was just going to ask if you recall the feeling, the predominant feeling that you might have experienced in your youth. Was it you know, this pressure and striving to be perfect? Or was there a sense of peace in your heart? You know, can you recall some of the emotions that you had at that time and then maybe how that impacts you as an adult now? Yeah. So some of it's really far away. So I'll do my best to explain from where I'm standing now trying to remember. I was always pretty in it, but high school is when I really made the commitment. I was homeschooled 
And I liked to talk about how excited I was about that. I was going on all these missions trips. I was witnessing to people. I did do some pageants because one of the things that is big within the church is women looking pretty, right? Like I remember sitting at a Jesus camp sermon once and someone saying that no man wants to marry a woman who looks like she fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. This wasn't a sermon. So that pretty thing on top of it being huge in the South anyway for women, was also preached from the pulpit. So I did do pageants, a handful of them. And I was you know, highly praised for not wearing a two-piece bathing suit. I only wore one piece with a higher neck. And I wore a cover-up like pants over that so that my butt wouldn't be out. <laughs> now I'm like, do I have to put on pants to walk out and get the mail? But <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was in it to win it in high school. So a big overarching thing was, I think, trying to prove myself and trying to like hang on to this thing and be great at it. And you know me well, so you know how it is. When I'm like, I want to achieve, I go all in on wanting to achieve. <laughs> this has been it, true throughout your life. Throughout my gathering. life. Yeah. Yes, throughout my life. And it's not been until very recently that I've started really trying to unravel that and trying to work through it. But yeah, I was in it to win it. And the overarching feeling was just trying, right? Like trying, but then slipping up and maybe listening to music or slipping up and watching something I shouldn't have or, you know, and then feeling guilty and like begging God for forgiveness. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot of mixed emotions. It was kind of a roller coaster. But I I think I was actually generally pretty happy because I didn't know any better. (laughs) Like I didn't, I wasn't at the point where I was like, it's time to start questioning this. And all I really wanted was to make my mom happy, to make the church happy and create this relationship between me and God that was unhealthy. Like the way they talk about it is like, God is father, God is protector. And so like trying to create this like emotional bond with a God that I didn't really understand. And I questioned a lot. Well, also having to show up to God spotless and pure rather than the invitation of having relationship or being an imperfect human and connecting and loving other imperfect humans. There wasn't a lot of room for for that. Everything was restricted. If I wanted to go see a movie, I had to look it up on Focus on the Family and make sure that it passed the godliness test before I could go. A lot of my friends were never even allowed to go to the movies. I actually think I know some people who've never been to a movie theater. Like it's it's it was very intense um the idea of going to a movie theater. No dancing, no music with drums. Beyond no music with drums, nothing that's not classical or a very specific type of Christian music. So I was actually considered quite rebellious by some of my friends' parents because I listened to contemporary Christian music, like me and for him. I was basically a fangirl, like, you know. (laughs) Was that true in your household too, though, of a little bit more of that loosening around like, hey, it's still Christian music. This is fun. This is Mm -hmm. engaging. It came in waves. Yeah. You know, there were times when it was acceptable and times when it wasn't. What's interesting though, is that my parents, they really loved music. And every now and then they just, they would just go into a a moment of, fuck it, we're listening to country music. We love country music. (laughs) 
And so when I left, um, which we'll get to, and I go out into the world, like some of the only music I really knew was country music from the 90s and 2000s (laughs) outside of Christian music. So that was a fun journey. But uh, TV, yeah, all that stuff kind of came in waves in the household. Sometimes it was okay. Sometimes it wasn't. So it sounds like you have this intensity and this passion and this commitment throughout high school. Did you find that that continued and perpetuated after what came next? Bible college came next. (laughs) And I really wanted to go to Bible college. I was in the throes of trying to prove myself to God, trying to prove myself to this church, trying to prove myself to my friends. And Bible college is what most of us were doing if our parents allowed us to go to college, which is sad story that'll come up later on in this podcast, but many women were not allowed to to go at all. Um, but I really wanted to go to Bible college. I didn't want to go to secular school. I don't think my mom knew this, but I had been preached at many, many times about the horrible things that happened at secular schools. And then if I went, all I was going to do was, you know, experience sexual assault and abuse. And then I would be taught, you know, things that would make me leave the church. And (laughs) um, so I was really set on going to a Bible college. And I really wanted to go to Bob Jones, which is kind of the crown jewel, if you will, of fundamentalist Bible colleges. But it was a little too expensive for the budget that I had for college. So um, I ended up finding out about Pensacola Christian College, which they printed the homeschool books that I grew up with. And their pricing was a lot more reasonable. And it was something that I could afford without taking out too many loans. So I decided to go there. And I really wanted it. And I read all the rules and I prepped myself. I read the rule book in advance. I picked all my classes. I was a double major in English and history. And I was I was thrilled to go and get a godly education from an unaccredited institution. Blessed. Okay, wait. Pause. So uh-huh. you mentioned a rule book. And typically when mm. it is, when I was co- searching for colleges, there was not a rule book that was handed <laughs> out with that. I was mm. looking at what are the extracurricular activities and the clubs and the sororities, but a rule book I don't believe was part of the packet. <laughs> Sometimes I forget how abnormal that is, even though I went to real college. Um, yeah, Pensacola has a thick ass rule book. It is massive. More rules for girls than boys, as you would imagine, um, especially where dress code is concerned. The idea at these schools is that conservative families can send their daughters and know that they will not be tainted because pure women, it's kind of a big deal. The purity culture movement was huge. It started around the time, you know, like the late 90s, early 2000s. It was really coming into a big, you know, pivotal peak moment. And so that was preached a lot. And so women had very strict dress codes. So we weren't allowed to wear pants. The only time we were allowed to wear pants was in our dorm rooms as early as 30 minutes before we were going to bed. We could not wear them in our dorm halls, like to go to a nightly Bible study, which we can get into. But it was just a very strict, it was a very intense environment. No headphones allowed on campus. If you got caught with headphones, they would confiscate them and you did not get them back. You literally sign away the rights to your property to go onto these campuses and be a student there. At the time, did this feel normative? Did this feel protective? Did this feel 
this is what I signed up for and this is reasonable? Or was this starting to raise any questioning with this restriction? At the time, I was I was just so in it, you know. In my mind, this is what God wanted from me. And there was no way that my people-pleasing behind was going to disappoint God. No way. I would have put my neck on the line for it. Like I looked at the rules and I was like, it's not my favorite, but I will do it because this, they are the authority and I will listen. Da, da, da. So I was in it. I was nervous about it. I'm not going to lie because I didn't think, you know how sometimes you read something and you're like, okay, that sounds intense, but it's probably not that bad. It's worse. <laughs> I don't think I expected how intense it would be. And I'm reading the rules and I'm like, no big deal. I already can't touch boys and can't like do these things. Like none of this is really that big of a deal. And then the reality of it sets in when you get there because there's so many unspoken rules and the intensity of it and the people who are willing to talk down to you and condescend to you and treat you like a child. That's very real. So what felt surprising to you? being there. Like, tell me a little bit about your experiences with these unspoken rules. I had this kind of romantic vision of this place as a center for God's love and for these people who loved God and who were just trying to learn more about God and dedicate their lives to God. And then you get there and you realize that everyone's kind of mean. Everyone's a little scared to be there. Everyone's a little bit anxious. And, you know, I thought I was going to go and get to learn all these incredible things. And and it just very quickly became evident to me that this was, this was going to be a controlling experience. There was no freedom for error anywhere. If you leave trash in your bathroom trash can before you leave for classes for the day, you're getting demerits. I mean, there's no room to be anything other than exactly the way they say. You can't be a minute late to class. You can't. Sometimes professors, there's a bell system. And there are some professors where if you skidded in at the bell, they were still going to give you demerits for it because you should have been before the bell. Tell me more about this demerit system. Because this, again, is not something that one would find in a typical college. Um, Really? Not for... (laughs) Being a minute late for class. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The demerit system was intense. And so there were levels to it. You would get small amounts of demerits for things like leaving trash or maybe you had a minor, minor dress infraction. Um, and then you, as you accumulated demerits, there were levels to the punishments you could receive. So up to a certain point, I want to say it was 75 demerits, which the leaving trash thing was like five. So we're not talking about like, that's probably not that hard to reach, honestly. (laughs) Um, You start getting more than little slaps on the wrist. For smaller infractions like dress, or maybe they thought you missed chapel, you go stand before disciplinary board. And then as it gets more and more elevated, there are things like being silenced, where you are literally not allowed to speak to anyone other than a professor or the person who's assigned to kind of watch you. That is a terrifying thing to see happen. That one shook me to my core. The first time I saw someone who had been silenced, only being able to tell someone, I can't talk to you, it scared the ever-loving shit out of me. Like, I was not into it. 
Okay. So how long into your experience at Pensacola, because you've gone from somebody who's very, these rules feel like something that I want to be aligned with. This is the authority to now like, oh, this is getting very intense. This seems a little bit unreasonable is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. It started setting in fairly quickly for me. Like I started picking up on like, oh, this might be a little more than I thought. A few weeks in, it wasn't until the first semester was over that I was like, I really don't know about this anymore. Tell me about your personal experience with some of these demerits. (laughs) So I am so proud to say that I only received... 12 demerits in my entire time at Pensacola Christian College because I am exceptionally good at not getting caught. So worked out great for me. Worked out great. Now, generally, I did follow the rules very well. Um, There were a couple of times I didn't. There were definitely times I stayed up past bedtime because we had a bedtime of 1030 and people would like come check on us. But there were definitely times like I had a Blackberry at the time and I would definitely like text a little bit and stuff after after hours. I never did study after hours because that was considered cheating. And if you got caught doing that, you would automatically fail that class that you were studying for. Wow. Okay. So no all-nighters. <laughs> nope. No this. all-nighters. No, absolutely not. Which made me feel really bad, especially for our nursing students, because they had it rough. That was an intense, it was notorious in the entire town for how intense this nursing program was. And for the students who were there that still needed to work, that was nearly impossible for them. They needed those late night hours to make it and they just, they weren't permitted to have them. So it was, it was kind of sad and really weird that somebody was coming to check on you when you're, you know, 19, 20 years old, sometimes up to 22 years old, having a bedtime at college. Right. I was starting to wonder about those whose responsibility it was to keep students in check, assign demerits, or <clears throat> accompany somebody who was essentially being shamed and silenced? There was a system and it was a well-oiled machine. So it started in your room. So you'd have suites, so two rooms connected to each other with four girls each connected to one bathroom with one toilet, one shower, two sinks. It's a wild ride, especially when you have to look a certain way every day. One girl in that room was assigned to watch the room. Then there'd be two wings to the building. To the building I was in, there was two wings. There was a floor leader for each wing of the floor. Then there was a building leader. And then all throughout campus, between professors and staff, there were people watching everything. And a lot of times students were those people. So when you went to chapel or any church services, you had assigned seats and there would be people checking your row and seat number to make sure you were there, one, on time, and two, at all. And you would, of course, receive demerits for not being there. Um, so yeah, it was, an, it was an entire system. There was also a gate at the front of the college, and it was fenced in all the way around. Big, tall wall there, so nobody's getting out or in, but I think out was kind of the bigger purpose there. <laughs> and to leave campus as a woman, you had to have, when you're a freshman and a sophomore, I think it's three or four other women go with you. You have to all check out together as a group and prove that you're going together to like go to Walmart and get pantyhose. Like, unbelievable. And you have stickers. Anyone who has a car has like a Pensacola sticker on it so they can be monitored around town. And you are, if you go somewhere, you're going to get caught most of the time. It's an intense surveillance setup they have going on. Wow. And it sounds like the rules for women were more plentiful and stricter than those Mm. for men. Yes. So much so. (laughs) Were there any other 
discrepancies. Were there any other ways that men were favored to women in this mm. institution? I, I struggle to think of ways that they weren't, right? But one of the things that really pissed me off when I started looking at classes and what classes I could take, because we did have to take a certain amount of theology classes, there were theology classes that I was not permitted to take because I was a woman. And I hated that. I hated everything about that. That made me so mad. Like, why am I not allowed to learn about something about God? And they are. I hated it. (laughs) Um, I still hate it. Outside of the classroom, what were some of the extracurricular activities that students would partake in? You know, what were the responsibilities to the school outside of just engaging in class? So we had chapel every single day for an hour, no exceptions, every day. We still had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night church, which I was used to from home, but like on top of everything else felt like a lot. Nightly Bible study in our dorms on our floors. And then spring break week was a wild ride because we had to go to three sermons a day for a week, but we didn't have classes. So it was a break, right? Like That's not what I've heard about spring break in Florida. <laughs> Welcome to Pensacola Christian College, where you can have the worst spring break of your entire life. <laughs> okay. So what did spring break look like? Because at, at this point, it sounds like you're a semester and a half in mm-hmm. and your impression of what had felt like authority and a well-respected place has really started to crumble. And so what was the breaking point? So I've been there for, you know, like you said, a semester and a half. I'm already a little frustrated and fed up with certain things. But the thing that really launched me out of this school and out of the faith in general was that I had a friend. She was my sweet mate. We were in it together, bless our hearts, because we both were a little more religiously liberal than our roommates and such. And we made just, we just became great friends. And one night we were going to, I believe it was a Sunday night service. And the sermon was on what kind of wife you should be. And this is a great moment for me to point out. I can maybe think of once or twice that I remember hearing a sermon about what kind of husband a man should be. And it would be part of a sermon. There were very rarely entire dedicated sermons to this topic, but there were often sermons about the kind of wives women should be and what kind of women men should be looking for. And in this particular one, the guy was very strict. Granted, they all were. In this particular one, he made the comment that men should be looking for women that were extraordinarily pure not of this world, not worldly at all. And he tells the story of a young girl whose class was writing letters to soldiers. And she wrote a letter to her assigned soldier and he wrote back. And in his letter, he made the comment, uh, excuse my French, and then said the word shit. And this pastor says, and this girl, so pure and untouched by the world, went and got a French dictionary to look up that word. I'm like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean that I know all of these words? You know, what is it? That's a little wild. I'm like, this is just bringing it back to women being on that same level 
as children beneath men and beneath God and infantilizing them. Right. To not even know a word that is so common in this country. Like, like that was hardly my first time hearing something egregious. But as we're leaving, I meet up with my friend and she is clearly upset, devastated. And we're walking back and I'm like, okay, she's really, she's really pissed. I don't know what's going on. We get into the elevator and she's like just begging for the door to shut. She's hitting buttons. She's tense. She looks really, really agitated. And I was like kind of shocked. And I was like, all right, what are we doing? And we get to the top and she's like, just get me off this elevator. We just got to get off this. And I'm like, okay. And so we go, we go to my room and she just kind of collapses onto my bed and just starts weeping. And I'm kind of in shock. I'm like, oh, wow. Like what happened? <laughs> like, I have no idea. I'm surprised. And she ends up telling me that her older brother's friend had molested her as a child when she was five years old and he was a teenager. And I had lived a very sheltered life up to that point. So I don't remember ever hearing about anything like that happening, even though it was happening all around me, it turns out. And we sat there and we cried. And she got to a moment where she was like, Why would any man want me when I'm defiled, right? When I'm tainted, when I'm, you know, all these horrible words we've heard spoken about women who have had any sort of sexual relationship with anyone before they're married to the one God has divined for them. And that was a breaking point for me. I remember thinking like that I had never considered that there were situations that existed beyond choices. She did not make that choice. So all of a sudden I'm staring down the barrel of a theology that says that she is unworthy of a godly quote husband, but she didn't make that choice. So why is she now somehow not good? or not as good as me or some other girl because some absolute disgusting man decided to take that from her. And I just, I lost it. And I remember telling her that that was not her fault. I asked if she'd told anyone, nobody knew. And I remember telling her that like, you are worthy of anyone. You are an incredible person. And, and like all of a sudden this huge theology I believe my whole life is just like, nope, right out the window. Absolutely not. Not doing this anymore. That was a breaking point for me. I had had years of questioning, like, especially where evangelism was concerned and knowing that certain people would never hear the gospel. I had lots of little questions. That was it. And so we left after that semester and I ended up going back home and going to the community college and getting an associate's degree. The college, the Pensacola Christian College is unaccredited. So I had to kind of rebuild um, so that I could get to, you know, a, a regular college. But that was really the moment that launched me. It's so heartbreaking that the church and the institution perpetuates this trauma, like not mm -hmm. just in 
that act and what it is that she was having to carry, but then how it is that she was being taught that reflected on her as a person. And I'm very touched and impressed that you had a wherewithal and an understanding, whether it was an understanding of, of spirit or of human worthiness to, you know, shine that back to her, to reflect that back. But it sounds as though your impression of the institution, which you had once upheld and was kind of married hand in hand with your experience of, of religion and of the word was kind of crumbling at this point. Oh yeah. It is falling. It fell out so fast. So the thing about me is that I might have a lot of questions and a lot of doubts for a time that I kind of let simmer on the back burner. And it really only takes one good moment to let that pot boil over and then it's over. I'm taking it off the burner (laughs) for better or for worse. That is kind of how I function. And that's, that's really what happened here. So I get home and all of a sudden I'm like, I don't know about any of this now. This cannot be what God is. And so I remember taking some of my complaints, not even complaints, some of my concerns to the church that I grew up in because they had asked like, hey, we want to know why you left. We want to know. And so, you know, if we're going to send other students there, like we want to make sure we know that we're not recommending a school that da, 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 da. And I laid it out with the pastor and he was having none of it, you know, as you would expect. Questioning is a hard pass. <laughs> in this world. It's either you need to just have faith or you're letting the world influence you. And in in cases like this where I'm like really laying out, like, I don't think this is God, I'm probably igniting some fears in the other party, right? Of like, oh no, we can't accept that this might be completely wrong. So I was shut down, which I hated because I really wanted to debate. I love a good debate, but I was definitely shut down there. And at the time, I was going to community college and working for a family in town as like their nanny slash housekeeper, kind of like personal assistant for the wife. And so I had a little bit of stuff going on to kind of like help me save money and whatnot. And I I just got to a point where it was so hard for me to keep going to church. I hated going there. So I asked my family, I was like, listen, I think I want to explore some other churches. I think I want to go and try this other kind of more relaxed church in town. Similar doctrines, but much more relaxed. And the answer was no, because we don't know their intentions. And like, that's important. You need to keep going to church with us. And while you live here, you'll need to do this. And so I'm like, okay, I guess I can't live here. And I end up uh, applying to several colleges in the UNC system, which I am a huge fan of. I had only heard great things about the education I could get. And I got into some bigger schools, but I ended up going with UNC Asheville for a couple of reasons. It was small. I knew I would get some one-on-one time with professors, and I had an aunt and uncle that lived there, and eventually my grandmother too. And so it reached a breaking point with the family where they knew I was going to college and stuff, but then we had a huge blow-up moment. Mm. So I was already kind of launched out of the faith without them know, really, really knowing or understanding it. They probably knew they didn't really understand it and they were doing their best to to hold me into it, right? Like keep me in. And I was gone already. And then there was a moment where I gave my little sister a responsible drinking talk. Because a big sister move. Thank you. I tried. (laughs) I was 21. She was 14. And you know, we were sisters. We talked about stuff. And so she had been experimenting with drinking. She was in public high school. That made me nervous 
<laughs> very nervous because <laughs> I I had had my first drink very recently. <laughs> like I was halfway through 21 before I had a daiquiri, a really good mango one at a very well-known Mexican restaurant in Nashville. And it was delightful. <laughs> but And I told her that. I was like, listen, hey, I'm not going to lie to you. I've had a drink. But like, I didn't get drunk and I'm 21 years old and there were people to drive me and I just give her the whole rundown, right? Like, if you're ever at a party and you're drinking and you get drunk, call me. I will drive four hours and come get you. Like, it was a whole ordeal. And through a weird series of events, my mom ends up finding out about this and calls me screaming about how if she becomes an alcoholic, it's my fault and you know how i wasn't going to teach her child all these terrible things and i'm like okay and we get into it and she makes the comment that i really just should should when i go not come back and we both we've talked about this we both have a i think a different understanding of what she meant by that but i took it for what i heard which was okay i will be leaving And so I made arrangements to stay with the family where I was working as a live-in like nanny assistant for another month or two before I I left for Asheville. And then I started the like (laughs) deconstruction process, which is its own, its own thing. But that's, yeah, that's what happened. It was brutal. I cannot even begin to explain how confusing and horrifying and scary and sad that whole time was. It was overwhelming in a way that I I even now can't quite understand, even though I lived it. It's a lot to leave your faith. It's a lot to leave your family. It's a lot to leave everything all at once. Um, You didn't know at the time what healing and growth and brightness you would experience in the following decade and however long. That's right. Okay. So moving to Asheville, you know, I, I heard what your motivations were in choosing a small campus and being close to your family, but Asheville is well known for being very liberal. So going from this tiny town in Aberdeen and from your experience in this strict church of Pensacola to Asheville, which has a reputation. Yeah, it, <laughs> does. it sounds like just a whirlwind of culture shock on top of what it was that you were navigating internally, Mm. emotionally, in relationship with your family, in relationship with your faith, and being new, not having these friendships and connections in this new environment. So can you Mm. tell me a little bit about, you know, just set the stage a little bit of coming into this new environment? Yeah, it's kind of like having all this internal fire, but no wood to burn. <laughs> like, it's it's intense. Amber, that is beautifully said. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's intense. Like I, you know, I have all of this desire, all of this passion. I'm leaving. I'm making a better life. I believe that God is different than this. I believe in the goodness of people. I, you know, fuck church, you know, whatever, like all the anger, everything's all wrapped up in this big giant ball of emotions. And then I start college and it's it's even more of that right because i have never other than community college never been in an educational institution at this level pensacola christian college while while i will say 
interesting and, and pretty good on the education front where the religion isn't involved. Still not, doesn't compare. I really don't know how to sit down and study properly. I don't know how to really write a long form paper. And I'm an English major, so I've got a lot of paper writing to do. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was going to a top 10 public liberal arts college in the country. So it was an intense program. Right. It's pretty rigorous. It's pretty rigorous. I'm taking classes from professors who ended up moving on to MIT to teach, you know, African literature. <laughs> and, um, so I was in shock in a lot of ways. And I was, I was having to stretch myself further than I even expected to have to stretch myself. But God bless that fire because once you start finding wood, <laughs> it gets better and it becomes a more stable burn. <laughs> but it's it's hard. I I really it's so hard. It's so confusing. I don't know anything about pop culture really. And so people think I'm super strange at first and I don't know how to make friends. And I have all these weird opinions because I haven't quite decided who I am as a person or what's actually true yet. And I haven't formulated a belief system of my own. I don't know anything about the world, really. It's extraordinarily confusing on top of processing the emotions of leaving. And I'm in constant fights with my parents at this point. Like, you know, they're very much wanting me to come home. I'm not going to do that. They're trying to bridge the gap, and I'm trying to bridge the gap, but it's not going well. Mom keeps asking if I'm going to church. Occasionally I say yes. I'm most definitely not. Because <laughs> I just, and I did try a few things. I just, you know, it was just a lot of experimenting, a lot of putting myself in situations that I probably wouldn't now because I just didn't know what they were. Yeah. And, and a lot of trying really hard because I had to really catch up where education was concerned. That just sounds so confusing. Oh, gosh, I cannot overstate the confusion. <laughs> it Well, yes, yeah, so much confusion. And on top of that, kind of this avoidance of your family, of, mm. you know, not telling the whole truth, I'm not feeling safe in the same way that you might have a year before. Mm -hmm. And it just sounds like a lot of heavy emotions. It is. From what it is that you've learned now, reflecting on this time, is this trajectory pretty typical for those who are leaving the faith? Yes. I'm really glad you asked that. There is a great book by Dr. Marlene Winnell. She is the only person who's released a book from both an educated perspective and a personal experience perspective on what it's like to walk away from your religion. It's called Leaving the Fold. And it is in the bookshop for the podcast, so it, it'll be linked. But she talks about the phases of recovery pretty early on in the book. And the first one is separation. It's this traumatic breaking away. And then there's the confusion. So when I first read this, I remember feeling so seen. <laughs> Just like, yes, I was so confused for so long. I didn't understand anything. The confusion phase went on for me for probably six years. I mean, the confusion phase... It's everything. It's a whole world. It's a whole understanding of the world as it is that you don't have. And then then there's avoidance, avoiding going to church, avoiding seeing my family, avoiding talking about it or dealing with it or whatever. Just like, no, I'm having a good time. I'm doing this. I'm going to be successful on my own terms, like avoiding. Then there's the feeling phase. And the feeling phase lasted another couple of years. That's when you really start 
to process all of the emotions of the upbringing, the leaving, and the aftermath. And something I encourage, and you will hear me say this many times as we go on, take your time in the feeling phase. You might need to be angry for years. It's okay to be angry. You can still be kind to people and be furious with them. You can still be respectful and have a very understandable and normal amount of anger. I just really encourage you not to feel like you have to rush through being upset and feeling like you can mourn what could have been and what wasn't. Something that you'll never have that you really wish you had, like a normal childhood, right? A normal family or parents who don't judge you and treat you differently now because you don't believe the same thing they do. It's a lot of emotions to process. And I cannot say enough to take your time with those feelings and feel them. I spent a lot of years pretending they didn't exist and then they catch up to you. So just do it. <laughs> just let it happen. You're like one foot in the avoidance phase and yeah. one foot in the feelings phase. Got it. Yeah. I straddled that line for so long. <laughs> so long. And then there's the rebuilding phase. And that's a huge part of this podcast because as much as I love hearing people's stories and as important as it is that I think I talk about my experience and they talk about their experiences, the best part of our stories is the rebuilding. These are people who've experienced trauma that many people, thank goodness, will not have to experience, who are thrilled to be alive. And they're thrilled to be making a life that's their own. And the rebuilding phase, it's tough because there's a lot of guilt that comes with it. Like you feel behind or you feel like you're not where your peers are or that, you know, you're not cool because you, you know, I was 27 when I saw The Simpsons. I was not cool. You know what I mean? Fun, not cool. (laughs) And there's just, there's a lot of feelings that come with that. And So the rebuilding doesn't mean that you don't have any of that, but the rebuilding is exciting because at this point, you've dealt with a lot of those feelings, you're establishing a strong sense of self, and all of a sudden, you realize that you have everything you need to make something great, and it's yours, and it's on your terms, and really, no one can take that from you. They can make it more difficult but nobody can take it from you. And it's just, it's the best. And to be honest with you, I'm here at 13 years, right? I don't think I truly started rebuilding until the past two years. It takes time. And that doesn't mean that you can't do any number of things in between all the other stuff. It doesn't mean that your life isn't going to start until you're rebuilding. Your life is going the whole time. But that inner work, that inner work of rebuilding and creating, it's great. And now I get to make this as part of it. And I get to hear incredible stories from people who've had experiences like mine. Some people were in the church with me and some from totally different denominations. And while a lot of our experiences were different, there are things that we connect over and understand that other people just don't quite, we can't bond with them over it. And now we have this together and we talk about where we're going together. And we talk about how joyful it is. And I feel really grateful to be in this phase of the process. I'm really grateful for therapy. 
I'm really grateful that I have a sassy therapist. (laughs) And I'm really grateful that I've had support on the way from friends like you and family. And I think, you know, when you leave a place where you're told that you're unworthy and you're not good on your own for most of your life, and you start realizing that you're all of a sudden like surrounded by all these incredible people who also think you're incredible, it's amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. Um, so yes, I think it is a common experience that those phases are common, but I just, I really love preaching, if you will, <laughs> the beauty of the rebuilding phase because it's what makes all of it worth it. Amber, I I will say again how much I just love you and how proud I am of you. You know, I've heard this story a couple of times and every time that I do, it just is so touching and I just have so much respect and appreciation for you. And I'm so honored to get to be here with you. I'm so grateful for what it is that you are building and allowing others to cross a, you know, this bridge into self-discovery at whatever their pace is. And now that you have you know, this perspective and reflection on your life, recognizing where it is that others are in that place. I can imagine that it helps them to feel a lot less lonely than you had to feel. I really hope so. You know, I get a little frustrated by, I shouldn't say frustrated because people are curious and I want people to know how powerful these institutions are. I want them to know the damage they do. I want them to know how involved they are in politics and education and all these things that that make up our country. I think that's important because it's dangerous and it's wrong. But there's so much more to our stories than the trauma. And I am just so excited to get to hear the parts that are bigger than that. And I hope when people listen to this podcast, that that's what they take from it, that maybe they didn't experience that, but like, damn, they can sure rebuild from whatever they need to rebuild from too. And like the resilience of human beings and the, and the kind hearts that are truly out there just trying to make it in the world. Like, I don't know. I just think that's the best part. And I hope people take that from this and not like, oh my gosh, can you believe, (laughs) you know, like that's part of it, but this is much better part. No, I think you do such a beautiful job of, you know, you're not here to traumatize your listeners. You're not here to tell another horrible story that unfortunately, like as shocking as it is, we live in a society with a lot of shocking information that we have become Mm -hmm. a little numb to it. And so I wonder just Instead, you're in this place of supporting people in their movement forward and honoring and recognizing that transition in the feeling and in the rebuilding. It's a gift. Yeah. It really is. So as you stand in this rebuilding phase, you know, just as with grief, probably with bits and pieces and memories of the pain of separation, some of the confusion, sometimes avoidance, sometimes immersed in feeling that doesn't, I can imagine that doesn't entirely go away, but you're standing firm with what Mm -hmm. it is that you've built for yourself. So from this platform, reflecting on this story, can you tell me, as you ask of your other guests, what is it that you see clearly now from this platform that you have built, you didn't see from when you were most immersed Mm. in the space below? For me, 
It's seeing people over institution. It's seeing the power and beauty of the individual's human experience and how unique that can be and how incredible that can be and how impactful that can be. And the great thing about being able to see people instead of what people should be according to an institution is that it's so much more interesting and so much more fun and there's so much more room to create space for people to be who they are and to express themselves completely without the fear that someone's going to tell them they're bad or they're wrong or they're terrible or they're unworthy of love. Some of my favorite experiences are when I get to hear people's stories. And so I, I, I love that that's what I've created here and what I get to have in my life. But yeah, I would say I see, I see people for who they are instead of what I think they should be. Oh, what, what clarity of sight. And it sounds like that has brought you so much joy to hear what experiences people have been vulnerable to share with you and watch them grow in, you know, a matter of an hour or reflecting on mm. their whole life. Um, mm. Can you tell me, too, what are some other great moments of joy that you've experienced in your post-faithfulness journey? I am fortunate to have had so many. One of the most recent ones is that one of my guests had such a wonderful experience telling their story that they went and got a tattoo. I can't explain to you how happy that makes me and how much joy that gives me. I love it. It makes me happy, so happy. But I've had great moments of joy and almost all of them are centered around one central thing, and that is that I have my freedom. I have the freedom to make the choices that I want to make, whether they're right or wrong, good or bad. They're my choices to make. And I'm the one who has to look at them and say whether or not I'm proud of them, right? I have the freedom to go wherever the fuck I want to go. And sometimes that means New York by myself, like a crazy person. Um, having never been there before, yeah, I'll Google it. It'll be fine. And sometimes that means just like staying at home with a book or a movie. And, and I get to choose that on a Sunday morning as opposed to feeling forced into going to a service to prove my devotion to the divine. And I've had moments of joy in realizing what I'm capable of. And I don't think I fully know that yet, but there have been moments where I got to see a glimpse of like, oh, I can actually do that. There is so much joy in seeing yourself when you're not allowed to see yourself, when you're not allowed to become, and you're all of a sudden becoming. It makes it, makes it all so worth it. It makes the the tough times and the, the inner work that you have to do and the the fights with your family and the, you know, the feeling isolated for just a while worth it. You just have such a remarkable and full, empowered, generous, and loving spirit. And with all the freedom and choice that is yours without the restriction of authority and framework and false promises and false sense of of safety, you know, one that's imposed. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get to see you walk through your life 
And that which you have the freedom to choose is so good, is so impactful, is so light and loving and meaningful. Thank you for that. I love my life. And I genuinely believe that it gets better even from here. And I'll close on this. You know, if you're in the thick of it and you're thinking about leaving and you have questions, or you've recently left, or maybe you've left for a few years, you know, you've been gone for a few years, and you're wondering if you're right or wrong, or if it's okay, or if you're going to be okay, I encourage you to ask yourself a few things. If you're worried about theology, ask yourself if God really said that, like you said to me that time, because God said it to you, Jenna. Did God really say that? And can I believe it if that's not true? And then I encourage you to ask yourself, even if God did say it in the Bible, can you believe it? Do you think that's really true? And I also encourage you to consider that it's okay to take a break. You don't have to say goodbye to it forever. You can always come back once you've clarified. And somebody recently said this in one of our recordings, but God can handle it if you need a year or two. So rather than telling yourself, you can't do it, you can't leave, you're going to betray God, eh, I think God's big enough to handle your questions. And I think if you've got them, God will meet you where you are. And that maybe God's a little bit bigger than whatever institution is making you feel like shit. So I'll leave on that. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support.